Welcome to The Randy Report. I'm Randy Slavacek, your host. I'm also the writer and editor of TheRandyReport.com, where you can find me every single day on the internet reporting on the daily news cycle in terms of politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. In this week's headlines, a journalist wrote a scathing piece about Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and the mayor called his critic to listen. HIV diagnoses in New York City show a significant drop in new infections. A Palo Alto police brutality case reaches a settlement. Gay panic defense could be bye-bye in New Jersey. And Casey Musgraves has a new Trey Gay Christmas special. All that and more in this episode of The Randy Report. An op-ed titled, Pete Buttigieg is a Lying MF, fill in the space, penned by Michael Herio for The Root on Monday, took Democratic presidential candidate Mayor Pete Buttigieg to task for remarks he made in 2011 during his first run for mayor of South Bend, Indiana. In a video clip which recently resurfaced, Buttigieg said, Kids need to see evidence that education is going to work for them. You're motivated because you believe that at the end of your education, there is a reward, there's a stable life, there's a job. And there are a lot of kids, especially in lower-income minority neighborhoods, who literally just haven't seen it work. There isn't someone who they know personally who testifies to the value of education. End quote. In his essay, Herio took offense that Buttigieg didn't point out inequalities in the U.S. education system, which stacks the deck against low-income students of color in terms of funding and post-college employment opportunities. Herio used a story from his childhood about having to jump a wide ditch in order to walk to the one high school in his town from what he described as the bad section of town. He contrasted himself with Buttigieg, whom he called, his language, a lucky motherfucker, for being able to attend better schools because, being white, quote, he didn't have to jump a ditch. In reference to the brief 2011 remark by Buttigieg, Herio wrote, This is why institutional inequality persists. Not because of white hoods and racial slurs, it is because this insidious double-talk erases the problem by camouflaging it because it is painted as a problem of black lethargy and not white apathy, end quote. The writer goes on to say Buttigieg didn't misunderstand or misstate the issue. Instead, he called the mayor a lying motherfucker, his language, and characterized Buttigieg's comment as knowing he had stated a bald-faced lie. Now, it would be simplistic to try and summarize the full op-ed here, but I encourage people to read it for themselves and to form their own opinion about the charges leveled at Buttigieg. It is worth pointing out, however, that Herio takes over 1,100 words to express what he felt Buttigieg should have said in less than a minute during that 2011 television roundtable discussion with three other people. In response to the op-ed, Buttigieg's campaign reached out to the writer asking if the mayor could call him to discuss the issue one-on-one. In a follow-up piece, Buttigieg reportedly began the conversation with the writer saying, I don't think I've ever been called a lying motherfucker before. 
During the chat, it appears that the two were able to find some common ground or agreement on the issue of institutional racism in education. Wrote Harriet, I conceded that the problems with institutional racism are so complex and go back so far that I'm not sure that anyone, a mayor, a governor, or even a president, could fix them. Buttigieg, however, insisted there were some things that people in power could do to make things more equal, a point I actually agreed with, end quote. The writer shares that Buttigieg asked him if he disagreed with the point that he'd been trying to make back in 2011, that, quote, sometimes children don't get to see the possibilities, end quote. Asked the mayor, do you think the lack of positive examples of educational success can lead to mistrust and a lack of confidence in the system? Herio's answer was both yes and no, saying, quote, The lack of confidence in the system doesn't have anything to do with role models or support from parents. It's because the shit is true. End quote. The writer concluded, saying he felt for Buttigieg to reach out one-on-one was brave and symbolizes that he's willing to engage with people and voters on the issue. He added, I didn't think that Pete Buttigieg was going to dismiss or ignore black voters, but I think in an effort to remain moderate, some candidates don't want to be as confrontational about these necessary issues because it does ostracize some voters. The writer says his initial op-ed, quote, wasn't meant to inspire outrage, end quote, P.S. it did, but rather he wanted to make a necessary point about black voters and real issues. Near the end of his second article, he writes, The only thing I actually know about Pete Buttigieg is that he is a white man. But Pete Buttigieg listened, which is all you can ask a white man to do. In reading the follow-up piece, it sounds like the two had a productive talk. Later, during a campaign stop in Iowa, Buttigieg told reporters about the 2011 remark, quote, what I said in that comment before I became mayor does not reflect the totality of my understanding then, and certainly now, about the obstacles that students of color face in our system today. The mayor went on to say his point of the remark was to underscore the need for mentorship and the need for career pathways. He added, the problem is to the extent that that feels like it's validating a narrative that sometimes blames the victim for the consequences of systemic racism. I understand why he was upset, and I understand the perspective and largely agree. End quote. Watching the whole debacle unfold on social media, I did have some thoughts about this. Buttigieg's difficulties in attracting black voters' support have been widely reported and discussed. In the last Democratic debate, Buttigieg acknowledged the struggle, saying he welcomes the challenge. There were several ways the mayor could have responded to the op-ed and ensuing kerfuffle. The path he chose was to reach out directly to the person who raised the issue and, as the writer said, listened. I think that shows an openness to learning. Reading the first essay, it seemed to present the 2011 remark as the entirety of Judge's thoughts on the subject. But as I mentioned earlier, the comment took place during a television roundtable with three other people early in his political career. Besides having a limited amount of time to expound on a very complex issue, in my opinion, he was fairly new to the idea of encapsulating sophisticated answers in a 60-second window. I'm not sure how much nuance you can include in that opportunity. 
While I won't even pretend to have the answers to solving the inequalities in education in the United States, I do think role models and mentors are a good thing. Minority professional associations even exist in great part for that reason. And speaking of nuance, reading the enormous amount of comments on social media, it was clear that some folks were chiming in after glancing at a headline without bothering to read either of the essays. In today's heated political environment, I urge people to actually read what is being discussed. To do otherwise perpetuates vague opinions without knowing the facts. For the record, I currently have no favorite in the presidential cycle other than voting blue no matter who. At this point in time, I see strong qualities in many of the leading Democratic contenders, including, in no particular order, Senators Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, and Bernie Sanders, as well as former Vice President Joe Biden and Mayor Buttigieg. And we're a long way from Election Day on November 3rd, 2020. Over the next 11 months, I think it's important in the process of choosing the Democratic nominee that we don't participate in a circular firing squad. My stance is if you think your choice is best, how about extolling their strengths rather than tearing down the other guy? In light of the U.S. intelligence community's certainty that Russia interfered in the 2016 election in part, by sowing and supporting discord among American voters, yelling at each other only falls into the trap. We can all have an opinion about who's the best choice to become the next president, and Lord knows I love people with opinions. I think we all knew this was going to be a rough primary season. Here's hoping candidates and their supporters can participate in our democratic process with civility and an ear for listening. All of the candidates have their own experiences, skill sets, talents, and intelligence. Other than Biden, whose years as vice president give him at least some insight to the realities of responding to world calamities in real time, everyone who sits in the Oval Office begins with some kind of learning curve. How a person handles a learning curve is important. In this situation, Buttigieg chose to lean in, ask questions, and listen. I think that's a good thing. Fewer than 2,000 New Yorkers were diagnosed with HIV last year. That may sound like a lot to some, but it's the lowest that number's been since reporting began in 2001. The 2018 HIV Surveillance Annual Report, released this week, showed that 1,917 people were newly diagnosed with HIV in New York City in 2018. That marks an 11% drop from 2017, and a two-thirds decrease since 2001, when 5,859 new cases were reported. Drops in new HIV diagnoses were particularly steep in men who have sex with men, people between the ages of 20 and 29, and those with a history of using injection drugs. However, rates increased among transgender people and men who report both having sex with men, and using injection drugs. Nearly half of the people newly diagnosed with HIV were black, 36% were Latino, and about 10% were white. In 2015, Mayor Bill de Blasio enacted the New York City Ending the Epidemic Plan, which aims to reduce the number of new HIV diagnoses in the city to fewer than 600 in 2020. 
The plan commits $23 million annually towards increasing access to PrEP and other forms of HIV prevention care, as well as making it easier for New Yorkers with HIV to get treatment. The report notes that 87% of people receiving care for HIV in 2018 were virally suppressed, which helps individuals stay healthy. The number of deaths from HIV causes also dropped. In 2017, the most recent year such information is available, fewer than a third of total deaths among people with HIV were related to the infection. Throughout the country, the rate of new HIV diagnoses has decreased since 2013, although the numbers have remained more or less constant. A gay man who sued the Palo Alto Police Department in California just settled for $572,000. Gustavo Alvarez said that police officers used excessive force when he was arrested for allegedly driving with a suspended license in February 2018. His lawyers released video of the beating earlier this year, which showed officers slamming him against a windshield, threatening to make him bleed, and making fun of his voice. The settlement with the city also requires all police officers in the department undergo LGBTQ sensitivity training. And former Sergeant Wayne Benitez, one of the officers involved in the arrest, will have to write an apology that will be made public. The incident occurred when Officer Christopher Condi spotted Alvarez's car on the road, even though he believed that Alvarez's license was suspended, so he followed Alvarez home. Condi confronted Alvarez, but admits that he didn't see who was driving the car, so Alvarez went into his home. Condi called for backup, and several officers, including Sergeant Benitez, came to help remove Alvarez from his home. Alvarez had set up a security camera outside his door, so this was all caught on video. The officers broke down Alvarez's door and dragged him outside and put him in cuffs. Now, remember, folks, this is all over an alleged incident of driving with a suspended driver's license. In the video, you can see Benitez hit Alvarez and slam him against the car's windshield. Said the sergeant, you think you're a tough guy now? After telling officers that he was bleeding, Benitez threatened him further, saying, you're going to be bleeding a whole lot more. Later, he was caught in a recording saying, see how well they behave when we put our foot down? That's what we don't do enough of. He also at one point said, he's gay to another officer, who laughed and responded by calling Alvarez a lowlife. Benitez then called for Alvarez's car to be towed. When the tow truck driver showed up, Benitez reenacted Alvarez's arrest using a high-pitched voice to mock him and mentioned his sexuality. Here's some of the audio. Come on out! Come on out! We're gonna break down the door. Because I know you're driving with a suspended license. I'm not coming hey, down. Gustavo, you cannot come in my house. Get in the puerta, pa. Get in the puerta. Hey, you think you're a tough guy now? Watch, watch, watch you. Leave the door shut. You're going to be bleeding a whole lot more. You know, how quickly they behave once we put our foot down, and that's what we don't do enough. <laughs> and then dad was behind him. Well, you guys go away. We're not going to get shit on out here by these freaking low lights. You broke your own door. I know. It's so sad. The charges against Alvarez were dismissed due to, wait for it, 
lack of evidence. He sued the police department, alleging excessive force and that the police officers were motivated by their hatred and prejudice of homosexual males. Benitez was placed on administrative leave by the department after the lawsuit was filed and video was released. But, just to show you timing is everything, he retired last month after 19 years on the force and is receiving a pension of over $100,000 a year. The other officers in the video are still working for the department. New Jersey could soon become the ninth state to prohibit the use of gay panic as a legal defense tactic in murder cases. The defense has been used to attempt to downgrade charges against defendants who argued that they killed because they were provoked by the disclosure of the victim's gender identity or sexual orientation. The legal maneuver attempts to exploit a state law that allows for the reduction of a murder charge to manslaughter if the crime is, quote, committed in the heat of passion resulting from a reasonable provocation. To date, eight states have banned the gay panic defense. New York was the most recent to do so in June, when Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a bill on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. New Jersey's bill was approved by the state assembly in a unanimous 73-0 vote. The legislation now heads to the state Senate, where it must also pass in order to reach Governor Phil Murphy's desk. Country music star Casey Musgraves is keeping the Yuletides gay by inviting some favorite out celebrities like Dan Levy of Schitt's Creek and Troy Savan to join her on her new Amazon Prime holiday special titled, What Else? The Casey Musgraves Christmas Show. The special, the first holiday special for the streaming giant, pays tribute to classic holiday specials while, quote, also reinventing just what a Christmas special can be with a magically modern twist. Musgraves tweeted earlier in November, The Yuletide's never been gayer. The six-time Grammy Award winner performs holiday songs with Schitt's Creek star Dan Levy narrating. Also along for the sleigh ride are Fred Armisen, James Corden, Lana Del Rey, the Radio City Rockettes, and more. Troy Savan joins Casey for a duet of her new holiday song, Glittery, which she recently debuted on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. You can watch Casey and Troy and Dan and the gang on the Casey Musgraves Christmas Show, now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And speaking of Christmas music, Randy Report favorite Matt Zarley recently released his take on the pensive holiday classic, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Penned by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine, the song made its debut in the 1944 Judy Garland film, Meet Me in St. Louis but not before Garland and studio executives asked for a tweak or two. For instance, this was the original opening line of the song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year we may all be living in the past. That felt a little bleak for Miss Judy. Leaning a bit lighter, Martin revised his lyric to read, Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight. Ah, much better, no? In 1957, Frank Sinatra appealed to Martin for another revision to the holiday standard, planning to release his take on the song for his album titled A Jolly Christmas. Sinatra felt until then we'll have to muddle through somehow needed to be jollied up. And so Martin revisited the song again and came up with Hang a Shining Star Upon the Highest Bough. In his approach to the holiday tune, Zarley takes on the song as written, 
bringing his considerable vocal powers to bear with an R&B bent reminiscent of the great Luther Vandross. Longtime collaborator Andy Zula shares producer duties with Zarley to deliver top-shelf production. Visually, the award-winning artist takes us on a virtual trip around the world from city to seashore, from small town to the Eiffel Tower. You can check out the music video from Matt Zarley's Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas on, where else? TheRandyReport.com. And finally, today is World AIDS Day, the 31st observance of the day. Each year, I make a point to reread a couple of essays by writers I consider much more talented than myself. They share these collections of words that capture a time now in the rearview mirror. Even when moving forward, folks, it's important to check in on the past. I'll have links in the show notes where you can read Mark King's award-winning essay about the courage he was forced to summon back in the 1980s when folks were holding to the ground as the ground kept shifting. And Joe Jervis of JoeMyGod.com, who each year shares his post, Membership, which chronicles a chapter in his life from 1985 when he and his friends suddenly joined a new and modern group of people who were forced to grieve much earlier than they should have. But World AIDS Day is also about celebrating this time and place when medications keep people alive with fewer and fewer complications, as 38 million people worldwide live with HIV. And for a huge number of people in treatment, viral loads can become undetectable. And as I've said many times here on The Randy Report, the CDC tells us undetectable equals untransmittable. As earlier noted, New York City recently reported new diagnoses of HIV have hit a 17-year low, and generic drug manufacturer CEPLA has announced a new drug for treating children with HIV, Quadrimune, which can be mixed with cereal or sprinkled on baby cereal that has an estimated cost of $1 a day. Those are good things. We are still here. Tomorrow will come. The horizon will still loom in the distance, even as we check the rearview mirror out of the corner of our eye. So remember your friends and fight for an AIDS-free generation. Get tested. Be safe. Lose the stigma. Do the research. Lift up LGBTQ leaders and help find a cure. And please don't ever forget to dance. Because we can. And that brings me to the end of this episode of The Randy Report. If you enjoy catching up on LGBTQ news in a quick podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would share The Randy Report with your friends. I like to think of this podcast as the 60 minutes of gay news, only shorter. And remember, you can find me every single day on the internet at therandyreport.com, where I cover the daily news cycle regarding politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. I'm going to close this episode with Matt Zarley's new take on the holiday classic, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next time. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light from now on.
Thank you.